Good morning again. Please uh, turn with me in your uh, Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Today we'll be looking at verses 6 through 16. Let's go ahead and open up uh, in a word of prayer. Lord, we rejoice in the fact that you have revealed your truth to us. If it was not for divine revelation, we would not know about you. We would not know about your goodness. We would not know any of your attributes if you had not chosen to first reveal them to us. And so we thank you for the fact that you are the kind of God that has not left us in the dark, so to speak, but has given us Scripture has taught us how to think, and I pray that you would help uh, even today to further us uh, down that road of thinking your thoughts after you, of being thoroughly biblical and looking for wisdom, not in the world, but in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Divine wisdom is better than worldly wisdom. This is really the theme of where we're going to be today, and it's the theme of where we were last week as well. We simply could say it this way, God knows better than we do. God knows better than us. His word is superior. His wisdom is infinite, and God is far beyond us in his ability to think. Now contrast this to the way that the world thinks, uh, or what the world thinks about us and God's wisdom. In the eyes of the world, we are fools. I mean, the world is not coming to us, asking us for counsel and advice. Uh, They're not seeking out wisdom from God's word, from the church. Christianity in the eyes of the world is foolishness, and we have embraced a lie. You know, we saw last week Paul almost in a veiled insult of the Corinthians, and we would kind of echo that in our own uh, situation. We're not the most articulate bunch. We're not the great and wise ones in this world. We're not anything special. We are just men, women, Children, families, living out the simplicity of the gospel in our daily lives. We're going to work, we're buying groceries, we're mowing our lawns, and we're just simply seeking to love Christ. We need to live out the gospel in our daily lives. That is God's wisdom. And we do need wisdom. We need wisdom from Christ. And that is what this passage is about today. But in order to um, maybe kind of get our bearings a little bit, I want to put today's passage in the context of where we have been so far in 1 Corinthians in order to set us up for what we're going to see uh, today. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we saw this big theme introduced. In fact, I think we could say this is really the first theme that Paul introduces, uh, or at least in terms of the application, uh, the first theme that he introduces in 1 Corinthians, 
And it was simply this. God calls us as Christians to abandon division. We as believers in Christ are to be unified, especially here on the local church level. Um, and then beyond that, in with what we would call the universal church, we are to be united. We are to embrace Christian unity. And so now the question is, how does today's passage about wisdom connect with that call to embrace Christian unity? Or is it just another topic? Is Paul just on, because he does that in 1 Corinthians. He goes from one topic to the next to the next. I would suggest that he is still talking about the same topic of unity, but he's talking about it through the lens of wisdom. Uh, I want to I share with you why I think Paul is still talking about unity. And we're going to look at, let's see, three verses here, all talking about Christian unity. And it's going to help us see that we're still in this section. So the first verse is obviously uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in uh, verse 12. And this is kind of the introductory uh, paragraph here where he started talking about unity. He said, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So right away, Paul is saying, I'm addressing your, your division. You're all divided in who you're following. Now, he's not done talking about this, because in 1 Corinthians 3, in verse 4, he picks it up again and says, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? Okay, so he's, he's still in this in chapter 3, uh, and he's still in this in chapter 4. So in chapter 4, verse 1, he's basically contrasting this with what he said in chapter 1. This is how you should regard us, okay? He's saying, don't regard us like I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus. Instead, regard us like this, as servants of Christ. Instead of regarding us as these, you know, Christian superheroes, Regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So, so what I'm suggesting to us here is that this section about Christian unity begins in chapter 1 and goes all the way through the end of chapter 4. And he's hitting on different aspects of what Christian unity looks like. Um, so let me just give you maybe a loose outline of this whole section through the end of chapter 4 almost, or at least through the end of where we are today. The problem is division. His appeal is be united. And now the diagnosis, this is where, this is where the division and the wisdom connect to one another. The diagnosis is human wisdom. You guys are divided because you're embracing human wisdom. That's the problem. You're, you're all going off in these factions and saying, I follow Paul, I follow Christ. That's human wisdom. Stop thinking along human wisdom, along the lines of human wisdom. Think God's wisdom. Think Christ's wisdom. And so, therefore, the solution, of course, is divine wisdom. So I would say that this four-point outline here really kind of hopefully helps to tie together this larger section and the reason why this, this talk on wisdom is so relevant because if you want to be united with your brothers and sisters in Christ, then you've got to stop thinking the world's thoughts. And you've got to start thinking Christ's thoughts. 
so that you can be united with one another. The reason that Paul is talking about divine wisdom is because of its necessity to overcome division. In order to state it as clearly as possible, we're going to say it this way. Human wisdom creates division, while God's wisdom creates unity. Human wisdom creates division, while God's wisdom creates unity. Let's read the passage in front of us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord is so to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. For the outline today, we're going to be uh, looking at these three points. God's wisdom rejected, his wisdom revealed, and then his wisdom incomprehensible. Um, So let's dive right in and start in verses 6 through 9. After last week's message, it is entirely possible that you may have reached the wrong conclusion about something. There is something, uh, particularly the way that Paul was talking, that may have caused us to make a mistake. And that is... With the ten occurrences of the word wisdom in the text last week, and how he was talking so negatively about it, you may have come to the conclusion that wisdom is bad. That he's really throwing wisdom under the bus here, and so therefore wisdom in general is not a good thing. And he corrects that this week to say, that's not what I was saying. That's not what his intent was. The intent was not to think that wisdom was bad, and he corrects that because right away in verse 6 he says says this. He says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Kind of feel like there's a little emphasis on that that do there. We, 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 We do impart wisdom. Don't think that we're not talking about wisdom. Don't think we're not interested in wisdom. Don't think that we're trying to be ignorant people. He's saying we do impart wisdom. He he clarifies this by saying, although. We we are imparting wisdom. Don't make the mistake of thinking that we hate wisdom. We love wisdom. It's just not a wisdom of this age. It's just this kind 
not that kind. That, that's all that we were trying to uh, state here. Paul is saying that it is not the presence of wisdom that is the problem. It is the brand of wisdom that's the problem. It's the kind of wisdom that's the problem. The, the goodness or badness of wisdom is determined by the trademark that it has on it. What, 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 it, what is the trademark? Is it, is it worldly trademark or is it a godly trademark? He clearly states this in verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. We, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are what? Doomed to pass away. I, I, I think um, sometimes uh, 80%, I, I may, I'm just kind of throwing that number out there, so maybe it's wrong. But I feel like 80% of teaching good theology is simply correcting misunderstandings. I mean, we, we, we teach theology. You see this with your kids, right? Or you see this if you're leading a Bible study or something, and it's like you're teaching this theology, and then a lot of it is going back over and correcting these misunderstandings. In fact, we really um, are blessed by the Lord to live in the day and age that we live in because we are standing on the shoulders of giants, theological giants in church history, Church history, many, many of these doctrines that we hold so precious from Scripture were actually kind of uh, clarified through adversity. And so someone came along in church history and said, Jesus is not God, you know, Arianism or whatever. And so now the church has to go to bat, and they have to clarify and define, and, and they become very articulate, and it's this but not this, and this but not this. And th- this is what theology is. It's, it's correcting these misunderstandings constantly over and over and over again. And I think that's kind of what Paul is doing here a little bit. He's saying, don't misunderstand. We, we, do, we are all about wisdom. We're, we're all about knowledge. We're all about understanding things. You have to understand the Bible, right? Um, but he's just saying it's just that it's this kind of wisdom and not that kind of wisdom. The wisdom that he's rebuking in verse 6 specifically is the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. These rulers are doomed to pass away. I mean, we might ask the questions, where is Gandhi? Where is Buddha? Where is Plato? Where is Aristotle? Where is Confucius? What will become of the wise men and women and the sages of our own day? They will perish too. And yet God's wisdom is the wisdom that endures. Their wisdom does not look like God's wisdom. Verse 7 makes this clear. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom from God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. The wisdom that comes from God is described here as secret, uh, as hidden, or we might say concealed, uh, until God chose to... Reveal it to us. God has revealed uh, this truth to us through the word. So we would say that a Christian, uh, if I can use this word, epistemology or the study of knowledge is revealed. How do we find out truth? It's not by going and meditating in a field somewhere. Uh, It's not based on majority opinion. We don't take a poll and say how many people believe this is true. We determine wisdom and truth 
through revelation. It was revealed to us. And so that's why he says it was secret and hidden here. It was concealed. The rulers of this age failed to understand that, and so they crucified Christ uh, in verse 8. Um, I don't think I have verse 8 up here, but verse 8 says, None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. If, if the rulers of this age understood what was going on, if they understood God's plan in the crucifixion, they wouldn't have crucified Christ. If they knew that they were carrying out God's plan, they wouldn't have done it. Because this plan ended in their defeat. They were actually, they were actually the very tools that God used to defeat them without them even knowing about it. God used them to defeat themselves. He was confounding their wisdom. And uh, he quotes here as an example of this, verse 9, which is a quote from Isaiah. He says, As it is written, what no eye has seen, again, remember, secret, hidden, concealed, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, a hard man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. He picks up on this theme of, of not understanding God's plan. He's, he's, he's really pushing that God's wisdom is confounding human wisdom. We, we do love wisdom. It's just God's wisdom, not the world's wisdom. And oh, by the way, the world's wisdom's failing. And look at how God's confounding it at every single turn. Again and again and again. He overturns and he actually uses his own wisdom to use their plan, which was really his plan, to defeat them at the end of the day. And then he encourages the believer here. So this wisdom should be encouraging to the believer. What God has planned in verse 9 through the gospel and through his salvation is absolutely beyond imagination. I mean, what God has prepared beforehand for those who love him, it's, we can hardly fathom. I mean, just try to meditate on the riches of heaven. On, on the joys of no more tears, no more crying, no more division, no more fighting, no more wars. I mean, can you imagine what God has prepared? This is part of his wisdom, and, and it didn't get accomplished through us. It was his wisdom that accomplished this. The rulers of this world, though, have rejected this message. The unbelieving world thinks the gospel is foolish, but in reality, everything is reversed. They get the bad end of the deal, and the believers get the good end of the deal, which should, by the way, motivate us to evangelism, push us to preach Christ. But this doesn't just happen automatically, it's not by default. If we're going to know what this truth is, if we're going to understand this wisdom from God, then God has to reveal it to us. And that's where we see in verses 10 through 13, God's wisdom is revealed. And we read here, beginning right away in verse 10, these things God has, here's our word, revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. God has revealed truth to us. We wouldn't have known it otherwise. And this whole section has been about the reality that God's wisdom is better and that humanity was blindsided by his plan. I mean, we did not see it coming. And we saw last week this quotation that if you put all the wise men of the world together and said, let's come up with a plan 
to put us in the right relationship with God. And this would have never been picked. God blindsided us with his wisdom. And so if we are ignorant of God's wisdom, then we're going to have to need him to tell us about it. And that's exactly what he's done through the word, through the Bible, and specifically, as this verse says, through the Spirit. And then he kind of goes on this little, I don't know if you would call this a a rabbit trail because he's going to kind of bring this full circle here. But he kind of basically is uh, saying, how does the Spirit know God's thoughts? I mean, if God's going to reveal his truth to us through the Spirit, how does the Spirit know? And then he says in verse 11, who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in him, so no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So God's Spirit knows God's thoughts. So he's someone who could teach us about God's Word because he knows about it. And then we understand that only God understands his own thoughts. Romans eleven thirty four. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? In other words, no one. Nobody knows God's thoughts. He does. Since this is true, then that means for us to know God's mind, we're going to need God's what? Spirit. Because the Spirit knows his mind. And so if we're going to know his mind, then we need the Spirit. And that's exactly what he says. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who's from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Because we have received the Spirit of God instead of the Spirit of the world, what does that do? That equips us to understand God's word, God's wisdom. I don't know if any of you can relate to this, but this is uh, something that I hear actually quite often is when uh, people are sharing their salvation testimonies, a lot of times they will say, I was reading the Bible before I was a believer in Christ. And they will say, what will they say? I didn't really understand it. And then they say, after I trusted in Christ, everything just started clicking. Have you heard that? Have you experienced that? Many of us, I think, have experienced that. This is exactly what he's saying here. You, you have the spirit of the world, and now you have the spirit from God, And now you're equipped to understand God's thoughts. Understanding God's word is more than just an intellectual capability. There is a a spiritual capability behind this. And so while we understand that unbelievers can uh, even do things like write a commentary on Scripture and perhaps even have some good insight, they don't understand it really to an applicational level of, I need this gospel. I need Christ. And so there's something that happens here with the Spirit being given that helps us to understand uh, God's Word and His thoughts. Uh, Before salvation, human wisdom was our teacher. After salvation, the Spirit was our teacher. By the way, don't run back to worldly wisdom. Don't do that. You want answers to life? Open your Bible. Open the Word. The answers are there. 
after salvation, the Spirit becomes our teacher. And of course, this is what we see in verse 13. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by who? The Spirit. The Spirit's our teacher now. Interpreting spiritual truths as those who are spiritual. The Spirit teaches us in, in, in simple terms. The Spirit is a very good teacher. The Spirit teaches us in simple, not, not complicated terms. We, we don't have to understand Plato and Aristotle and Kant and Hume and all this. We don't have to understand the, 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 the current uh, spirit of the age. We just need to know the word. Spirit teaches us in simple terms. And by the way, uh, probably many of us are aware of this, but for a long time, I, I think it was actually until the 1800s, if I'm correct, for a very long time, we thought in Western culture that the Bible was written in an elevated language. Specifically, the New Testament. So, the New Testament is written in Greek, right? And we call the New Testament Greek Koine Greek. It's a little different than classical Greek. It's not modern Greek, it's Koine Greek. Uh, and we didn't have any other. And then all of a sudden, someone, I think in the 1800s, found like a bunch of receipts and transactions and stuff written in Greek in a cave somewhere and found out this is exactly the same as the New Testament. And, and this really kind of demolished the prevailing view of this elevated heavenly language to realize this is the language of the common man. This is, to borrow T T Tyndale, the, the language of, of the plowboy, the, the, the person, the factory worker, the, the, the person who just does their nine to five. It's in that language. Um, and now I'm going to go on a small rabbit trail. But this is why we seek translations of the Bible that are faithful to this original style. Um, the, uh, the, and and the, by the way, the King James was written that way in that day. It's changed because English has changed. Um, but ev even today when we read the King James Version, we hear like the these and the thous. We think, boy, that is just lofty language. That, that, is, that is the language of of royalty. You know that's not how you talk to royalty in King James English. That, that, that was just a common way of interacting with, with someone, the these and the thous. It was, it was the language of the common tongue, and that's why we seek a translation that's faithful to the common tongue. Because God has created his word to be accessible to everyone. He's revealed it to us. But the problem is that not everyone wants to know God's word. The natural person certainly doesn't. And so from that perspective, we would say, even though it's been revealed, the natural person works hard against it so that they don't understand it. In verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The unbelieving person looks at the Scripture and says... This is absolute foolishness. 
if you hate God's word, how can you be a believer? The unbeliever hates God's word. Believers, on the other hand, love God's word. In 2007, the Washington Post conducted an experiment. And this is all detailed in an article on their website. And the title of this article is this, Pearls Before Breakfast. Of course, this is a reference to pearls before swine in Scripture. And uh, in this article, does any, has anyone heard this story before? You'll probably recognize it once I start to get to a few of you, maybe. The article describes Joshua Bell, who was voted the best classical musician in America. And Joshua Bell took his $3.5 million violin to a DC subway. And he played this violin, and the article describes what happened. The article describes that Bell normally plays at concert halls and that his talents can command $1,000 per minute. He's a good violin player. Bell performed, as the article describes, six classical pieces over a period of 43 minutes as 1,097 people passed by him. The result of this little social experiment is explained from the article, and I'm going to quote some of that here. It says this, In the three quarters of an hour that Joshua Bell played, seven people stopped what they were doing to hang around and take in the performance for at least uh, a minute, at, le- at least for a minute. Twenty-seven gave money, most of them on the run, for a total of $32 and some change. That leaves one thousand, uh, the 1,070 people who hurried by, oblivious, many only three feet away, Few even turning a look. By the way, you can look this up. The the video is on YouTube, and you can watch him playing as everyone's passing by him. Uh, A little while later, the article continues and says this. As it happens, exactly one person recognized Belle, and she didn't arrive until near the very end. Uh, For Stacy, for Kua, I don't know how to pronounce her last name here, um, at the Commerce Department, there was no doubt She doesn't know much about classical music, but she had been in the audience three weeks earlier at Bell's free concert at the Library of Congress, and here he was, sawing away, begging for money. She had no idea what was going on, but whatever it was, she wasn't about to miss it. Then it says, she positioned herself 10 feet away from Bell, front row center. She had a huge grin on her face. The grin... Uh, and Stacy remained planted in that spot until the end. And then it quotes Stacy. She says, It was the most astonishing thing I've ever seen in Washington. Joshua Bell was standing there playing at rush hour, and people were not stopping and not even looking, and some were flipping quarters at him. Quarters! I wouldn't do that to anybody. 
When it was over, Stacy introduced herself to Belle and tossed in a 20. <laughs> Not counting that, it was tainted by recognition, the article says. The final haul for his 43 minutes of playing was $32.17. Yes, some people gave pennies. Now look at verse 14 and read the last four words. They are spiritually discerned. That's what that means. They, they have no idea that they're looking at something great. They have no idea that when they open up the Word of God, that this is something profound. They, they, they haven't been tuned to recognize this greatness. Just like many people haven't been tuned to recognize uh, the, the brilliance of the classical pieces that he's able uh, to play. By the way, I probably would have walked right by too, okay? <laughs> uh, I, I wouldn't have seen it for what it was. This is what Scripture is talking about. Unbelievers are driving past churches week after week and sometimes hearing the gospel day after day and they don't recognize it. Unbelievers are like the men and women in this D.C. subway station ignorantly walking past the good, delightful, pleasing fruit of the gospel. But we, not because of anything in us, not because of anything in us, not because we were more noble, we are the ones, by God's kind, gracious will, who are standing in front of Joshua Bell, absorbing all of that, delighting in that good fruit. We, the ones who are regenerated and in Christ, are the ones who hear and appreciate the notes played by God's word. God's word is so delightful. We see and smell its truth. We feel its effects in our lives. For us, again, those of us in Christ, the gospel is real, the gospel is clear, the gospel is precious, the gospel is in HD clarity. It's three-dimensional. C.S. Lewis captures this uh, in his final book in the Chronicles of Narnia. Do, do you remember the very end where these dwarves are in like this little shack? You remember that? And for, and this was actually in Aslan's country. I'm not saying this is theologically accurate, okay? <laughs> Just take, take it for what it is. Okay. But these dwarves are in this shack in Aslan's country. And, you know, uh, everyone is surrounding these dwarves saying, look at this beautiful country, look at this beautiful food, taste this, and they, they think that they're in this little shack and it's all dark, and they say, what are you talking about? We can't see anything here. They say, look at this beautiful mountain over here. There's no mountain over there. I can't see. It's dark in here. Say, well, taste this. Look at this beautiful piece of food. Taste, taste this beautiful piece of food, and, and they taste it. And say, That's disgusting. That, I can't... Have, I do want to give here just four differences between, as this verse talks about, the natural understanding 
and spiritual understanding. I'm actually borrowing this from Jonathan Edwards, and I kind of paraphrase them a little bit here. Um, but th- these are the four differences that Edwards gives. He says that spiritual knowledge transforms the heart, and natural knowledge does not. And we would agree with that. God's Spirit changes our affections, our desires. Edwards says for the second one that spiritual knowledge purifies the life. Natural knowledge. Now, the spiritual knowledge has the ability to cleanse us, to change us. And and I can get these to you, um, whether my paraphrase or the original later, if you want to. Um, And then he says here as the third one, spiritual knowledge creates a holy joy. Natural knowledge does not. Christians are joy-filled people. And then number four, he says, spiritual knowledge produces humility. Natural knowledge produces pride. The knowledge that comes from the world creates pride, puffs people up. Look at what I figured out. For the believer. And the result is that the believer is equipped now to know certain things, as verse 15 makes clear. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. To say that the spiritual person judges all things is the opposite of verse 14. Verse 14 says unbelievers are spiritually discerned, they don't have the ability to understand. And then verse 15 turns around and says believers can judge all things. They they can understand these kinds of things. They they can make correct judgments about the world because they've been equipped by God's Spirit. And then in return, they're judged by nobody. The point is that only believers can understand spiritual truth. This is why we front load our counseling conversations with evangelism. Someone comes to you for counsel because uh, whatever, their marriage is disrupted or whatever it might be, they're struggling with depression or anxiety, we front load that with evangelism because that's the only way that they're going to find hope is in Christ. Um, The point is that only unbelievers can understand spiritual truth because of verse 16. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. We are equipped to understand truth. And that's what we need today. We need God's spirit to understand God's truth. And here's what that means. If you are sitting here today without Christ, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Trust in Christ and you will have God's Spirit. I have three points of application. Number one, rejoice in what God has prepared for those who love him. That was verse 9. You Remember that? He, he was saying, you know, they would never crucified Christ if they knew how he was going to use this. And then he quotes Isaiah and says, look at what God has prepared for those who love him. It's part of the secret wisdom of God. We never knew this was coming, that he would, he would redeem us through the sacrifice of Christ. Number two, uh, impart wisdom from uh, God through evangelism. 
again, we're front-loading our work in this world with evangelism. And then number three, rejoice that the Lord has revealed his truth to his children. Now, let me say, let me clarify something here. This goes back to what Jonathan Edwards said about creating humility. I don't want you to make a mistake when you hear this. Some, Some might think that what we're saying is we're the ones. God's truth has come to us because we are the ones. If you understand what it means for God's truth to come to us, then you understand that it means we're not the ones. God's truth cuts away every remnant of human pride. When you go to your unbelieving friends and family, don't you dare take any credit for what Christ has done. Don't reserve a sliver for yourself. Remember our depravity. And then remember God's grace. It's all of him. You you understand what's going on here in 1 Corinthians. And you understand that there's no context for boasting. Remember he dismissed that last week? And so perhaps we'll close by saying what we say oftentimes... And that is simply, we're not the good people. We, we're not. We're bankrupt without Christ. And yet when we trust in Christ, he undeservedly gives to us the riches of these wisdom, this wisdom because we have his spirit. Thank you, God, for today, the gospel, your wisdom. Thank you for revelation, for revealing truth to us. Thank you for your faithfulness and kindness. I pray that you would create humility in us, that you would create spirits in us that are receptive to your wisdom and your work. Help us as we go. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.